But again, that comes down to some of the hubris that journalism often has, which is that we're publishing the truth, you know, we're pursuing the truth. And it's true that we're pursuing the truth, but we don't actually get to the truth. You know, there are a lot of different truths. And I think that we, the best we can say is that we publish what we believe in our hearts is true at deadline. Most likely it's going to change before we know it. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode 73. That's the 73rd episode of the Afternoon Tea Podcast, where we chat with some of Canada's most interesting business personalities. My name is Chris Hobbs, and I am the president and co-founder of TTT Studios, a Canadian software innovation studio headquartered here in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. We've had some amazing guests going throughout season five, including last week's fantastic chat with Tamara Mohammed of Aspect Biosystems. But right now, I'm excited to say this is the last episode as we wrap up season five with today's guest, legendary Canadian journalist Kirk Lapointe. We'll also hear from Vancouver Tech Journal's editor, Kate Wilson, as she chimes in with a question that she's personally thought of for Kirk. So thank you for joining us to listen to Kirk tell us about his lifetime experiences in the media realm. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and do all those things we podcasters love. But now, Kirk Lapointe is a legendary Canadian journalist. Currently, he is the publisher and editor-in-chief at Business in Vancouver Media Group and the VP editorial of Glacier Media, where he is tasked with managing the operation, leading the editorial team, writing columns online and in print, moderating event panels, and co-hosting business in Vancouver's podcast. Meanwhile, Kirk teaches ethics and leadership at the University of British Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism. In the past, Kirk has been a radio host, the executive director of the Organization of News Ombudsmans, the managing editor of the Vancouver Sun, senior VP of news at CTV slash Bell Media, the executive editor of the National Post, the host of CBC News World, and even ran for mayor in Vancouver in the 2014 election. Kirk, thank you so much for joining us today. Chris, you're out of breath already, man. Oh my it's, gosh. Thanks, though. Thanks so much for the lovely introduction. Great to oh, be with you. Well, th- th- lot, lots to share, lots to talk about. So this is going to be a lot of fun. So, you know, I'm just going to ask you one profound question right off the bat. Why is professional journalism today so important? Well, look, you can go to the cliches about it being a cornerstone of democracy. Uh, you can take a look at its importance in terms of guiding the public discourse. You can look at it. And as uh, as you know, the sense of uh, exploring with curiosity the wider world. There are lots of lots of reasons why it has some importance and significance and relevance in, in our time. Uh, but in a lot of ways, for me, it's it's always had a sense of a public purpose to it, and so that that's what kind of guided me with it. Yeah. Oh, very good, very good. Well, you are the editor in chief of Biv, as we all see, or Business in Vancouver. Can you tell me a little bit about that role? Well, it's a pretty wide ranging role because it's changed a fair amount uh, since I came here in 2015. Uh, we've broadened ourselves with magazines, more magazines. We've, we've started really getting uh, much more of an entree into events. Uh, it still requires, I think, uh, a retention of the newspaper. You know, we're one of the places that uh, staunchly refused to give up on, uh, on a newspaper, a printed edition. Uh, 
but we're moving a lot of our work and we have been for a long time into the digital sphere and that really brings with it um, more reporting on break news daily news uh, trying to make sure that we're uh, we're watching things minute by minute it means uh, using social media to amplify our voices mm-hmm. and what it tries to also be in my case uh, where I've been particularly uh, uh, trying to provide some focus is to broaden the news uh, digest that it provides every day with some more commentary, with more columns that are coming from contributors in British Columbia in order to essentially, again, guide some of the public affairs, uh, you know, that, that we want in our province. Mm-hmm. Well, very good. Well, one thing I, 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 I doing a little bit of research because we do our research uh, before we're ready for uh, speaking with wonderful fellows like yourself is that uh, you stated your specialities are newsroom management, precision journalism, teaching, freedom information, and ethics. Why do these specialities make you an effective journalist? Well, I usually ask Chris when I'm teaching, I ask the students, uh, why did you get into this? And, and it's pretty interesting what you get in the way of response. The mm-hmm. initial response is, well, I'm in journalism because I like telling stories. And what I usually say to students then is, well, that's really kind of the surface reason. Uh, and then and people will say, well, I'm curious. You know, I'm, I, I really try to probe into things and I want to explore. I want to investigate. And even then, I... I usually respond with, well, that's a, maybe a little bit of the outcome of this, but there's something more in behind this. And what I try to talk to other journalists about, and I think that we don't spend nearly enough time on, is the self-exploration on what drives us to come into this field and to participate in it, contribute to it. And I think if you really look back and with whatever occupation you have, providing that you're satisfied with it, that you weren't forced into doing something that, you know, that maybe you were a little apprehensive about. But mm-hmm. if you really take a look at that kind of continuum of a career in a particular field, and you ask that person, why are you doing it? Mm-hmm. If you take a look at your own life, you can actually find the roots of your professional capacity, your occupation today, in something that happened to you as a child, in your family origin, you know, in those stories. And to some degree, it, it can be informed by um, a trauma, tragic event uh, that, that shaped you. Uh, or in some cases, it can simply be the environment that, that you were in and what values that emerge from that. But we're really hardwired at an extremely early age hmm. to pursue something. And for those of us that are fortunate enough, we get to pursue that path consistently and we persist at it and we, we stay in it, we stay in that lane. Uh, but in a lot of cases, people don't really take a look at the personal history that involves that in a sense of self-care um, and, and it, will then shape, first of all, the occupation that you have, the, the inputs that you are prepared to seek and, uh, and, and absorb, uh, the diversity of viewpoints that, uh, that mm-hmm. in some cases need to be contended with in your own 
uh, your own kind of expression um, in your own participation, say a newsroom or, or something. Mm -hmm. And then what you're really looking at as well is, is how do you uh, fit your, your outlook into something that has a, a different context um, in, in applying uh, uh, your, your journalism to an audience. And so, yeah, I mean, I, that's, that's where I kind of ramble around a bit, um, which is to try to get people out of their, um, their stock answer, which is, well, I do it because I like to tell stories or, you know, I, I'm, I've always loved to write. And, and I, I tend to push people back to say, look, there are other much more meaningful reasons on why you're doing this. You know, can, can we explore it? Because believe me, it's going to shape the topics that you choose to cover, the areas that you choose, even the questions that you have about them. They'll come from a different place. That is so interesting. Well, I, I want to, I want to, you know, cook that a little bit and use it through the filter of, you know, of journalists, um, journalist students, um, journalism students. You're talking about trauma, or you know, the other side of it that that might cause it. Have you ever had these deep conversations? Realize, you know, from a signal perspective, that there actually is a, a specific, or at least a. Um, you know, kind of a, a rule that you're finding that there's a tr certain trauma or certain desire inside that causes journalism to happen or you to be a journalist? It varies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I've, I've shared my story uh, quite a bit. Uh, in my case, uh, it meant uh, growing up without a father figure, mm -hmm. with a single parent, and not knowing the identity of my father. You know, you wind up in a very curious situation there because um, you then are trying to persist and struggle and find frustration in the search for this answer. Who is this person? Who is this person? But if you translate that and you take a look at my the body of work that I've had and, and a lot of other journalists have had, it's, um, it's trying to get, um, it's trying to get sources of material. It's trying to get secrets and documents and records under access to information or freedom of information law. So it's not surprising that I dedicated a big part of my career toward this pursuit, because after all, I was after the one secret I could never have, which was the identity of my father and what that would have changed in the way of my path and in growing up in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so there are a lot of these stories, uh, you know, journalism is replete with a lot of these stories and journalism has, has ostensibly drawn as it drew me out of poverty, out of, uh, out of a very simple, uh, working class style of living. Um, and, that that is, for the most part, where journalists are drawn upon. They're they're drawn from the uh, you know the, the the working class roots, the sense of underdog and overdog, uh, the the suspicion of power, uh, the uh, you know the the efforts that are made in order to find some kind of equitable. Uh, societal framework, uh, some form of justice, those kinds of things. 
So those are the themes that that pervade journalism. I mean, it's it's really quite you know it's quite easy. Those ones are easy to see, and and I haven't really articulated it. Uh, I think terribly well in a lot of cases, but you can kind of see that you know the, that uh, that kind of concern um, then plays out over a period of time, and it can often frame the direction that you're going in, as uh, whether it's as a journalist or as a manager. Stories that you want, the stories that you don't care about, you know, the themes that you that you'll spend a lot of time on, the themes you'll disregard. And I, I can guarantee you, Chris, that even, you know, the questions that you'll ask me um, have some kind of root in your childhood. I mean, it's, it's, it's just what it is. And it's not, not any kind of big magical, uh, you know, magic box of any sort. But uh, you can really learn a lot about yourself today on the basis of reflection on what you were like as a four or five, six, seven year old. It's really, it's, um, it's a pretty direct line. You just have to, you just have to actually look for it properly. So oh, that's, that's incredible. Well, I, I just want to kind of think about, I mean, these questions that can't be answered or, or how, I mean, how much do they, how deep do you go into questions that can't be answered? How do you how do you how do you let them go? Like beyond just you know, say the parental one in this case. Like, is there other ones where you go? I can't find the sources. I can't. I have to let this go. Or how how much does that bother you? Yeah, well, it, I mean, it it's bothered me a lot in adulthood, and I'm lucky on two fronts. One, of course, I was able to still. Um, persist and be, you know, and, and try to determine uh, the role that journalism had in my life and, and some of the advantage that came with it. And there's no question, a lot, of, a lot of advantage. But I was lucky in the sense that there's a relatively happy ending to the story. I found out who my father was. Oh, fantastic. And, uh, through, through DNA research. And I've written a bit, a little bit about this, but it really does, uh, change the the uh, end of the story for sure uh, you you know you, you it's not quite a happy ending but it's an ending that that works out okay which is that you you then get to understand who your father was and what he did and where he was at any given time and um and there's lots of ironies in my case you know it, it uh, turned out that um having been born in toronto having been raised there uh, you know, my mother basically uh, giving birth to me there through a very brief, uh, brief affair that she had had. And again, I've written about this, um, that, uh, that, that, you know, here, here it is roughly 60 years later. And um, through all the things that have happened and all of the great roles I've had, all the great jobs, uh, all the learning I've had, all the people I've met um, and, and everything. Um, it turns out that my father, uh, after he parented me uh, with my mother, um, eventually found somebody, married, and moved out to, of all places, West Vancouver in, wow. in, yeah, in the 1960s so, hmm. uh, and, and raised his own family there. So, and, and in finding that out, finding out this, this path, and probably in the last uh, last three or four years, I now um, yeah I, I, I now have a 
little bit more contentedness about my my life narrative. And it makes it a little easier to kind of not just tidy up some of it, but also to recognize what you know what the impact has been all the way along in in how I lived my life, what I did for a living. Um, you know, I had no question how it how it affected my overall family. And uh, mm. and and you know, I think um, I don't have a really unique story. It's not, not, it's not particularly, you know, between 1945 and 1971, there were 600,000 people in Canada who were born out of wedlock. So, you know, we're, we're talking about a large cohort here. It's not, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, there's no uniqueness to my story. Well, uh, but yeah, it, it, you know, it intersects with my journalism, no question, as, as it would intersect with anybody in a particular occupation. Oh, for sure. Well, you know, just just out of, you know, uh, under, trying to understand and sympathize in a way that, you know, from your, from your, you know, thank you for sharing the story, but, you know, my mother was adopted, for example, and I actually always grew up, she's from Quebec, and I always grew yeah. up thinking I was French, um, you know, half Quebecois or whatever, and um, I remember when I was 10 she she spent a lot of time trying to find her 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 parents and she actually and, and in quebec they really it was a lot of laws a lot of catholic church holdings of information oh, right. um, my mother's, my mother's yeah. pretty french canadian catholic too don't worry so, so yeah so but i actually met my grandmother like my biological grandmother when i was like nine or ten in quebec and and to be honest it, it that experience, I think, was even more traumatizing than not finding her. Like, it was nice to do, but the woman said, yeah, I don't know who the father is. It could be one of 10 people. And by the way, can you have to give me some money? And it was just like, yeah. a, you know, it was it was a bit of a, oh, okay, that 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 chapter's closed. But at the same time, you know, that's going to just add a little bit more trauma to it. But go, you know, yeah. go go figure. Well, I, you know, I just want to say, because you you mentioned how journalism comes from a place or, or all, all careers or whatever, you, you know, how, how you beautifully put it, comes from a place of personal tragedy personal personal you know the want to want to know something how hard is it to separate a story from your own personal feelings and you know the 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 id from the actual content itself it's a challenge and i've seen people master it uh it, you know even to use the term master is probably not the right term but i've seen people with real capacity to separate those those parts and i've seen others just struggle and, and commingle them and uh and don't and without really the self-awareness uh, and so what i try to do with students and we don't get very far because i i barely know them you know, it's probably better to have this conversation with people you know and have known for some time because they're they're going to be you know less reticent about Mm-hmm. express vulnerability because it's it's really a, it's a matter of expressing vulnerability but a lot of them don't see like and and these are practitioners of you know three and four decades and they, they're still not seeing it they, they they just don't go that deep into themselves because journalists i i find it's a generality here but journalists are far better far better at exploring the wider world than they are about exploring themselves. I mean, just, there's no, no question. We're, you know, we're the last on the agenda and, uh, and it's a lot easier to, uh, to, you know, review 
uh, you know, the, the, uh, the strengths and weaknesses of a theater play than to uh, review the impact on you emotionally and what it, you know, what it evoked in you and, and what it reminded you of and, and you know, what were the, the so-called trigger points for you in the course of it. Um, you know, we express ourselves a lot more readily in engaging the outside world than the inside one. Uh, and I, you know, and, and I, I credit, uh, I credit my wife in a lot of cases with, with her own exploration of these things, because I think it's been, you know, it's, it's had its influence, but I wouldn't say that I'm particularly adroit at this. I think, uh, I, I think I still have lots, lots of blind spots and lot, you know, that, that, um, where I don't recognize my own behavior is uh, is guided by some of these uh, habit patterns, and uh, and I, I you know what I try to coax in others anyway, and I, I try to do it myself is is recognize it and and embrace it. You know, don't don't deny it and embrace it, but um, but it's a little bit like bias or subjectivity. Chris, and, and mm-hmm. you know, yeah, where people go, oh, you know, journalism is is so, so you know, it never is objective. And I'm going, well, nothing is really objective. It's all very subjective. The critical part is, can you recognize the subjectivity, and then move toward more objective methods in your journalism, mm-hmm. where at every step along the way, you're saying yourself you're you're asking a bunch of questions and you know am, am i doing this fairly am i treating someone equitably am i harming them um there are better paths for me to choose here uh am i missing do i think i'm missing information should i be trying to find that before i then go out and express myself you know all of these types of things that i mean in a far better way than i'm speaking right now um kind of some kind of rigor. Um, you know, a lot of journalists really, kind of skip along and don't don't take care of that. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think clumsy work comes out. And that's where uh, you know the public has a right to be disapproving and uh, and, and in some way feel uh, quite let down um, by by journalism, which I think has uh, a way oversized responsibility hmm. considering the uh, overall expertise it has or authority that it has that way. Um, well, you know, I just want one more question because this imprinting, the personality, your sympathies, all of these things. I mean, I'm, I, it's really, you know, as you're speaking, thinking a lot about this, because I mean, as you said, you I mean you have primary, secondary documents. I mean, you know, no one really just wants to read receipts. They want to read the analysis of the receipts. And yeah, that's a bias or whatever. But when you're talking to a, to a source, for example, do you ever find yourself sharing a personal story in order to get into their, you know, to, to get them to open up? Or does that create bias in them? Do you think like, is there a strategy with that? Or is it the case by case? Yeah, I, I'm always careful about that. Uh, you know, it, because then, then it becomes too much about you, and not about them. Mm-hmm. It, it, on occasion, it will help to share a story, uh, but when you do too much of it, you begin to fawn, and and 
and and I think there's a it's kind of a manipulative approach to there uh, to, to that. And I and then a smart person on the other side will recognize that I'm you know that there's kind of a it's kind of a play at work here, and that you're not being kind of an honest broker in the discussion. Mm. And and as I've aged, you know, I've recognized that to some degree, um, you know, I've I've tried to not appease, but I've tried in many cases to appear sympathetic and and you know not even empathetic, but really sympathetic mm-hmm. to the subjects of the stories that I've I've written or broadcast, and and I don't know that that's the the correct approach i think you know i think there's still you still have to wear the hat of representation as a bit of a surrogate for the public and that places upon you uh certain responsibilities that also require you to have a slight detachment or distance from the person you're discussing things with so that if you share too much, if you overshare, um, you, you kind of invalidate mm. the inquiry because then what you're say, essentially saying is, I'm with you on this, and, I, and all I want you to do is to simply keep kind of reinforcing my, you know, my stand because my stand is your stand, and, and you know I. I I, uh, so I think you have, to, you have to walk that very carefully. Uh, you you need a little bit of detachment, not too much because you don't want to seem indifferent. But but you need you need to kind of keep your you know keep a little bit of handy reserve and skepticism in these transactions of uh, of interviews because to do otherwise is is to simply just join you know join a club and that's not what the public really wants from you they they want a a fair-minded reading uh and that that, and they want you to represent them oh that's interesting well man thinking about so many things here like for for example if you're caught as a journalist i mean and i think any medium as a journalist this happens if you're caught where you don't have your source correctly done or we'll, we'll just call it like trust you've broken trust with you know with the readers with the viewers with any of these things is it possible to get it back is it is is it like how hard is it to come back from that oh man like you know <laughs> as a newspaper editor i remember being in hamilton and uh, you know in, in the late part of the last century so you know 1996 7 8 mm-hmm. and uh you know, we would get cancellations of subscriptions. Um, and I call people and say, why, you know, why did you do that? Well, you know, about five years ago, you guys got the street name wrong, you know, on, on this accident that happened near my house. And you're, you're going, really, that's it? That's, well, yeah, because if I, if you can't get that right, how can you get the really important things right? Wow. And you're, whoa, okay. And then, of course, um, and media, you know, we're, first of all, we're not, you know, we're not all that homogeneous. There's so many different types of media, but we generally call the media. 
when in fact we can't agree on whether the sun rises in the east or the west anymore. But but you know we all kind of stand and fall on the basis of the weakest part of us, and um, and so when when somebody else makes a mistake, we all kind of pay the price. Um, we're all in this together, and and we have to be careful that we don't say, oh well, that's them. You know, we're responsible because because there's so many times where journalists try to act as a big pack and in advocating change and advocating policy and you know and fighting for uh, for certain uh, privileges in, in our society that we can't just pick and choose when we want to do this however um, you know trust takes forever to build forever it seems mm. and can be gone in a heartbeat mm. one bad story one bad sentence one bad word and um, I, you know, it's it, it's it's something you just have to recognize, and that's why I think journalism uh, does a horrific job at at uh, atoning and apologizing, mm-hmm. making amends for its mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it can get brutally reckless at times, uh, unconsciously shown. So for the most part, it's not it's not a it's not really any kind of malevolent streak i think in the craft but errantly uh unintentionally it can offend and breed this significant lack of trust uh, that seems to be forever in decline you know I, i can't remember a time when it actually improved and you know i joke that we're you know we're still kind of ahead of tapeworms on the you know on the likability side uh all my lawyer friends i kind of compare you know compare our status to theirs uh you know uh we we self-inflict a lot of wounds chris you know we're we've tons and uh some of them are quite systemic they're not they're not just you know a mistake in a story but the literature actually is quite distressing it it demonstrates that one in two stories have a factual error that hasn't changed in a century that we've been examining it despite the better education despite the better range of information that we have at our disposal um, despite you know despite the increased accountability that's placed on us we still mess up all the time and and i and i think that the public would forgive us for it if we were more habitually uh, citing ourselves, citing the mistakes we made, and trying to find a way to fix them, and and not quite apologizing, because I think apologies carry a little bit more weight uh, legally than than we want to bear, mm-hmm. but at least re- you know regretting errors and and being a, a lot more open about them. You know, when when I was an ombud at the CBC, uh, and then eventually the executive director of the organization uh, worldwide that, that uh, oversees these kinds of standards, every ombud I dealt with uh, had the same story, which is I cannot get my news organization to recognize that hour by hour it makes mistakes. And, and the public 
is onto them. And when you don't do something about it, or when you appear to have a kind of a nonsensical defense of it, uh, that that is far more a contribution to the lack of trust than essentially saying, yeah, you know what, didn't do that well, uh, really sorry, uh, you know, here's, here's what we're going to do here, um, and here's, here's what we've learned, and I don't think we're going to do this again in the same way. I hope not, you know, like, and, and not to be cheery about it, but you can never really say we'll never make this mistake again, but you're going to say, well, you know, there's enough of us around, enough of us have learned things. Yeah, I think enough of us are going to recognize when we come up to roughly the same situation again, that we don't want to go down this path, we want to go down the other path. And, and I think, I think the public would, generally speaking, I think they'd be far more forgiving. And then, mm. and then the ones that don't forgive you, you probably can't get back in any event. But the ones that are sitting on the fence, I think there's a lot of those people, but they're not getting the, the vibe from journalism that is prepared to be transparent because we have such a defensive culture in our craft. You know, there are there are organizations that never admit a mistake. Never. I mean, good heavens, you know, even the Pope has given up on the concept of infallibility. Like just <laughs> get on it, you know. Well, you know, you've been, you, you've done uh, obviously so many different roles from, you know, an editor, we'll call it management side too. I mean, editor might be a management side either way, but, and reporter. But when you find out that there's been, a, I don't want to call it truth breaking, because I think the way you described it is sometimes, you know, sometimes there's uh, challenges with some, some of the information, maybe just you were told it wrong, or maybe there was a little bit of lazy journalism of getting one fact or that, but who would be to blame of that break of the trust in that role? Would it be like in the sense of, hey, we need to print, we need to get this done now, just put in what you have. And is it like the role of the editor say, no, we can't publish that unless we know every factor. Who's, you know, because things are so fast these days and they need to be printed in order to be competitive. Who's usually yeah. the, 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 the role of, the, of, who do you find if the trust is broken? Who's the real person? Is it the reporter, the editor? Where, where, where's that break usually happening? It's shared responsibility. Uh, and and I, I fault uh, the journalism in general in the last decade or so. Um, the rise of social media placed, uh, I think, an undue amount of stress on the uh, frontline journalist mm -hmm. to uh, to essentially uh, tweet, post, uh, you know, uh, do a number of things with uh, basic information. Uh, probably before it was ready uh, in, in a lot of cases. And, um, and then to, in an iterative way, patch it up as the day went on with whatever was created online. And, uh, you know, nobody likes to be third with, with basic information that you could have been first on uh, or you could have been tied for first. And I think responsible organizations are less enthusiastic about being first than they might have been. They want to make sure that it, there is some verification that, uh, that you know it's there isn't a really strong contravening piece of information that that uh, you know the, the that you know they're disregarding. But I think the reason that a lot of these mistakes continue to happen is is due to the fact that we've taken the technology 
and simply slid it into the workload of a journalist hmm. without understanding really what the consequences are uh, because it's it it draws time away from a more thoroughness from a little bit of reflection hmm. from uh, you know and and from talking it out with uh, with another person in your operation to see if you know if, if there is a kind of a common approach that that can be taken a lot of journalists are left right at the to their own devices literally you know they're posting this material from their smartphone mm -hmm. to the wider world on um, you know on, on twitter or facebook or instagram or linkedin or tiktok or whatever and uh and we try to avoid that here we, we try to make sure there's a second set of eyes at least on it uh, to make sure that that there's not some really big mistakes, some howlers out there, mm -hmm. but uh, but mistakes happen, you know. And uh, you know the old line of uh, you know that's why they put erasers on pencils. Everybody makes mistakes, mm -hmm. and 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 so then you you know then it comes down to how do you handle the mistake? Do you try to just overwrite it? You know, you kind of put a new version out online without telling. The public that perhaps the thing they're reading is uh, has been changed a few times or changed or worked over. Uh, you know, you're trying to trying to capture uh, at least some of the the mistake uh, before it gets too broadly repeated. And so you, you need to notify the audience that you know there was there was an earlier version that did this, and really it was didn't prove to be accurate. We've got more accurate things. But again, that comes down to some of the hubris that journalism often has, which is that we're publishing the truth, you know, we're pursuing the truth. And it's true that we're pursuing the truth, but we don't actually get to the truth. You know, there are a lot of different truths. Mm -hmm. And what I think that we, the best we can say is that we publish what we believe in our hearts is true at deadline. And then the second we, you know, our finger on the send button um, we better start all over again and reconsider because most likely it's going to change before we know it and and we better be ready for that so you know this kind of you know uh, bossiness about about the you know the the empirical nature of the material that we're using is you know it's 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 a convenient fallacy for us and uh, I, I think more of us need to get over it. So, you, you know, something that's that that I really reflected and actually helped me in my understanding and respect of you know some some of these large um, news agencies you know that, that I read a lot like the you know from the Guardian, New York Times, CBC, you know they've got a lot of resources yet how often do they publish and there's a spelling error in it like all the time like it happens all the time yeah. but. Yeah. The fact that you just said is, hey, people usually don't know that they're publishing from their phone <laughs> to do it. You know, if it ended just like sent from my iPhone at the bottom, would that yeah. make people believe more in the trust of it going, oh, you know what? That's just an honest mistake. They'll fix that because it happens yeah. all the time. Would that, you know, would something like that, you know, with some of these modern tools that we're dealing with, if you actually mentioned, hey, I'm using one of these modern tools, does that help in the trust, do you think? Yeah, I've got a friend who, sends from his iPhone 
with a signature that says, sent from my iPhone, apology, yeah. apologies for the typos. It's not because I don't know what I'm doing. You know, um, I just can't spell well. And, and you know, uh, that's, that's okay. <clears throat> but I think correctly, the public has learned over the years that more is to be expected from journalism. You know, I, I don't doubt for a fact that we have a systemic issue still with representation in journalism, with diversity of viewpoints, with with you know with a broader perspective of it, and and you know my generation uh, bears some of the blame, I would say, but also uh, has taken correctly some of the responsibility to to address it. We're, you know, my generation is the first one that I think has has openly thought about um, ensuring that news organizations strive for uh, a, a better reflection of the communities they're serving with the within the ranks of the operations. Some have come far more slowly than others. Some have come a, only a short way and not a terribly long way. Uh, there's still a very long road ahead uh, in terms of uh, leadership and representation in our newsrooms. Uh, you know, I, I say this obviously as a, an older white man uh, that you know that the business will be overall healthier when there are a lot of other faces, mm-hmm. backgrounds that are um, that are running our places. Um, I'm, you know, I'm content and serene about that. Uh, but a lot of people are not, and a lot of people are, are still fighting for their lives to defend the realm. And um, and I, I just think it's a, you know, there's a moral argument in all of this uh, that's that's important for all of us. There's also, you know, to be crass about it, there's a business argument. In, you know, I think. I think uh, my wife wrote a book a few years back um, called Reckoning, which which I think made the case extremely well that part of the problem that journalism has isn't necessarily the business model. Uh, the, the presence of the, the arrival of the internet to disrupt the legacy media's you know, fantastic profitability and near monopoly. No, I, I think you know the, the near monopoly also um, was related to the fact that we had a, a, a sameness of thinking and backgrounds in our newsrooms that absolutely alienated the the, the kind of the infusion into our country of of people from other uh, parts of the world. Who were saying, "Well, I don't recognize myself in this reporting. I don't recognize myself in the local paper. I don't recognize myself on the local television station or on the local radio station." And uh, thank goodness we've got the internet because we're, you know, we're now going to be able to, to get some sense of expression that has more relevance to my, you know, to my experience. Mm. But, but really, when we look back, that that should have been the job of news organizations. And, and I, you know, I'll, I'll accept 
my share of responsibility for that. I mean, I, I, you know, I oversaw a diversity initiative as well at CTB, and it was a fight. It, it was a pitched battle to make any inroads at all to put to put you know people of different backgrounds on the air in you know on a on a big league television station i mean the, the you know the institutional uh, resistance to that was quite incredible hmm. and now thankfully i i think we're you know i think we have turned a corner i think now the 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 uh, the drive is how you know how quickly can we get there? How quickly can we can we do all of this? It's not you know, we need to do it. It's it's how quickly, and that's a healthy thing. I mean, I sure. I, I really think so. But of course, I you know it's it's easy for me to say, you know, I've benefited uh, for forty plus years from this relative inertia in the craft. Um, if I felt any kind of competition for a role, uh, it was because perhaps I didn't have, I, I didn't come out of a, a rich, privileged family. Um, I didn't, I, you know, I never equated my my um, ethnicity, if you want to call that, my race, with um, with the struggle that I felt uh, I was experiencing in terms of uh, an economic competition to get a job um, but I learned very quickly that, that there are all kinds of competitions mm. and that mine wasn't necessarily the one that was most critical uh, that that, uh, the, that we excluded you know we excluded women we excluded people of color we, you know we made some horrible mistakes in terms of our uh, recruitment uh, retention advancement um, that cost us large parts of an audience that may never come back mm. may or may never materialize for, for uh, certain organizations. And so I, I think there's a nice, healthy diversity that's emerged. Uh, I would just love to see it all wrapped up in a, in a much bigger mainstream, broadly applicable um, uh, media that has... Uh, more financial durability than some of the startups that I see that that you know can get wobbly pretty quickly mm. because of lack of funding. Yeah. Sure. Well, I mean, I I, I really you know I'm, I'm intrigued what you're saying about you know the different voices, different you know perspectives. Because I know in our company, for example, we were represented from you know from many different cultures and you know, sexualities, preferences, all of these things. And it really does help when it comes to finding solutions to problems because you're having lots of different voices, um, you know, that have experiences to kind of equate to those problems. And, um, but I want to reflect on is, because it starts with you. Like when I talk to my kids, I'm always amazed, you know, my, both my kids play hockey and my daughter, especially, you know, there's a lot of they, them um, in, 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 in both sides of hockey, but it's very common. And I love the way that they're so comfortable with explaining it. Um, you know, where for me, I'm an old dog. I, 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 I want to do it respectfully, but I have to think about it instead of just naturally, you know, the, the way they can use language in a way that's very different for me. And I, I really, I really love that. And, you know, you've been teaching at UBC, say over, over 20 years of the, of the journalism. Do you find that those voices are being, are growing? Um, or yeah. is it, you know, are, are there strategies to help the, the journalism school find those people who want to share their voices? Well, 
you know, the, the composition of the school has, uh, has really changed in the time I've been there. And mm -hmm. that, uh, that pays dividends um, for the craft, uh, the longer that uh, longer this goes on. Um, you know, I, I think uh, media organizations that I know are, uh, are actually struggling to find reporters right now. You know, it's, mm. it's, there's a lot of us in the, in this community alone that are, that are looking for these new voices. And it's not to exclude, uh, um, you know, the, the voices that have been, uh, employed in the past. It's just, you're just looking for, for, um, you know, strength and, and additions to, uh, to the newsrooms. Um, you know, where I, where I kind of, uh, hope that we get is, is in, to find a uh, find a time when we're not really needing to talk about this any longer. Yeah, and uh, I'm not sure we're close to that, but but uh, but it would be really good if we did, just didn't have to have these. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm all, I don't want to be naive about it. I think we're I think we're going to go on for some time. You know, I I wrote a column this week about um, something as simple as uh, as a council deciding to strike the land acknowledgement, the indigenous land acknowledgement from its meetings. And uh, I somewhat expected this, I guess, but man, the, the number of people who just came at me, you know, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know and, and so there's still an awful lot of, of you know, um, people that haven't explored this uh, and are still living off their um, their views that were shaped 30 and 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm sad about that. Uh, mm. I, and, I, and I think that journalism um, has a little bit of a responsibility for why that you know why we didn't find ways to discuss important sociological issues in our communities to in a way develop a, a different tone to this you know um, mm -hmm. i think we we made loads and loads and loads of money um over the years as organizations by in a, and by largely being either oblivious or ignoring some of these tensions in in communities and just playing through and and you know I think now uh, we're all we're paying a lot of different prices as communities for, mm -hmm. for this and so you know if, if I had to do it over again you know the benefit of hindsight, right? Uh, you, you would do things pretty differently. Hmm. Well, speaking of different voices and um, let's say different lenses of how, you know, we look at business or, or, or sports or, you know, entertainment. Um, one organization here in Vancouver that I've always really, really enjoyed um, is the, the Vancouver Tech Journal because they seem to um, 
have a bit of a fabric on a very, very specific area here in BC and really kind of spreading out and, and you know, for the tech, the startup, that, that sort of world. And I'm really, really lucky to have Kate Wilson, the editor of the Vancouver Tech Journal, to ask you, um, you know, tell us a little bit about what she's doing with the Vancouver Tech Journal, but also to ask you um, a question herself. Kate Wilson, what's your organization's name and what is your role with them? So my organization is the Vancouver Tech Journal and I'm the managing editor which basically means I'm in charge of everything to do with the words. So the day-to-day -day editorial, building our content calendars, managing our writers, getting their work out, copy editing. Uh, I write my own stuff too, and just getting out there in the community as well to, to make sure we're building the brand and, and bringing value to people through things like panels and events. I think that's super interesting because what you said about being part of the community is so true. I mean, it's hard almost every day not to have a VTJ, VTJ event out there that's a real value to the community. So what you're bringing, not only on the reporting and the community building is really tangible uh, for everyone in Vancouver. So I know personally, I love what you guys do and I thank you so much for it. Well, why personally did you want to become a journalist? That's a great question. I think from a really base level, I really like writing and I like storytelling. Um, mm -hmm. But beyond that, I think it's maybe more of the traditional answer. I think journalists do have a really important role to play in society. And mm -hmm. the way that people are able to synthesize facts and, and put them together in a way that's interesting for people to read, I think it's an important service in a way for people to understand the world around them better and, and be able to put all those things together to shape their worldview. So that's kind of the that's the, the driving motivation for me. That's really got me interested in it. Um, but it's it's been a weird journey, actually. I, I definitely haven't had a, a conventional journey to come to journalism. Well, what what and what makes it weird? Do you say then? Um, yeah, I never went to journalism school, but actually, I think <laughs> a lot of journalists don't. I think a lot of people come to it from adjacent channels, and and in a lot of ways that works better. Like, I think the best politicians are the people who never study politics, are the people who get into it because mm -hmm. they have more of a social mission behind it. I think it's similar in in, in ways for journalism. Um, but I I always thought I was going to be an academic, so I did my undergrad and my masters and started a PhD at Cambridge. Um, mm -hmm. And then I realized I had to get a job at some point and I knew that I wanted to be in Vancouver. So I looked up, you know, what does it take to get a job at UBC or SFU? And you basically have to wait for someone to die, which, you know, I didn't want to base my entire future on someone else's mortality. So I was like, no, I'm doing it. I'm I'm fulfilling my dreams of uh, of being a journalist. That was always my childhood dream. So packed my oh. one suitcase, got on the plane and and was lucky to to get a job here pretty quickly after. Well, we're, we're lucky to, to have you, definitely, Kate. And uh, you might not have gone to journalism school, but you went to one that has a little bit of name recognition, one might say, at least. A good one, a good one. Um, well, in today's... It is, it is good. It is good. Most of my profs at UBC definitely had a little bit of a, you know, a, a, a tint towards Oxford or Cambridge or any of these schools. So I think to come from any of them is probably a, a, strong, uh, a, str a strong indication of your desire to be the best at what you do. Um, in today's world of instant news and social media, why is professional journalism so important? That's also a great question. I think the easy answer is that the things that you're getting on social media or, or that instant news isn't necessarily uh, an indication of something that's necessarily true. It's it, it's hard to pass through that and be like, what's actually the factual truth here? Um, and I think what journalism does is provide context. I think good journalism provides context to what you're seeing. So if you see a soundbite on, I don't know, Instagram or you see a video, anything can mean anything when you have it as a standalone entity. But good journalism is able to fill in the blanks there. It's going to look 
the past, the future, it's going to have conflicting viewpoints, uh, and it's going to situate that in a way that's actually helpful for people. That's the goal anyway. But I think it's also, it's more complicated than that, because I think mm -hmm. a lot of it falls on the reader rather than the person who's producing the content. I think you need to approach something that you see on social media the same way that you would do with journalism, even though journalism has been fact checked, it's been copy edited, all of the, well, you hope so, <laughs> all of the above. If you have a good newsroom, that's all been done. Mm -hmm. um, I think you still need to read it with the, the same critical eye as you would do if you just saw a quote on social because there's a lot that gets left out in an article because you mm -hmm. can't write everything it's just not possible um you need to think about the biases that maybe someone had going into that article you need to think about what's the particular bias of this publication that i'm reading and i think it's important to actually read widely in the news because if you're just reading things that correspond to your your viewpoint you're not really shaping your understanding and in a world where we're particularly polarized i i would recommend reading something that's on the left, in the middle, and on the right. Because without that, I don't think mm -hmm. you can have that suffusion of ideas and do what journalism is meant to do, which is to educate you and, and inform you about what's really going on. Uh, the importance of contrast. I, 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 could not, I could not agree more. Well, tell me about the founders of VTJ. It has a, a pretty interesting history. So we're sort of the mm -hmm. new kids on the block in terms mm -hmm. of tech in Vancouver. So mm -hmm. our founder was William Johnson. I think he founded it in 2018, but I can, I can double check that. Don't fact, fact check, fact check that. that. <laughs> um, fact checking is important. Um, mm -hmm. So he started it in 2018. I'm going to say I'm going. I'm going to. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it. Mm -hmm. um, and it started as a newsletter where he was collecting content from around the Vancouver tech scene. Uh, no original content, but he he chose such good stories that the readership really grew pretty fast. Uh, and then it caught the attention of Farhan Mohammed, who used to mm -hmm. be with the Daily Hive and uh, Andrew Wilkinson, who is at Tiny Capital in Victoria, who also has an interest in news. Mm -hmm. And they have a company called Overstory Media. So Overstory Media wants to focus on hyperlocal news and, and really drilling down into a community and finding what's what's good in very specific areas. So Burnaby, New West, Fraser Valley, uh, Vancouver, Victoria, they're all very specific. Mm -hmm. specific places so vancouver tech journal really fit into that mandate because it does what it says it's vancouver tech and it's a journal um it, so we're really bounded by yeah we're bounded by a community like the other publications but also by a topic we're the only one that is bound by topics so when they bought us uh we had some more resources and we've grown mm -hmm. the team to five now and twenty-one thousand subscribers we've launched our membership tier which is doing great. And I'm always surprised, actually, because I'm like, how many people actually are there in this community? Because we're just, the hockey stick just keeps going. We haven't mm -hmm. plateaued at all since we started. So that's a really a fun place to be in to, to help grow that. Well, I, I'm going to use this platform actually to say that I am a paid member and I think everyone should be because if not, this great journalism and this great community goes away people and we need to be supporting the voices and the messages of the community in order to 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 be that much stronger. Um, and, and now one, you know, we're talking about the Vancouver Tech Journal, but I noticed all of a sudden not only was it Victoria, the other VTJ open up, but then the Calgary Tech Journal, where does it stop until it becomes federal? <laughs> that's a great uh, it's a great question so we're going into other markets now and, and trying to replicate what we've done here because we've seen that it has great value to the community so the, the goal is to go into other places that also have these thriving tech locales and, and, and tech communities and try and grow it there so vic tj as you mentioned has been going for maybe six months and mm -hmm. 
yeah, again, going from strength to strength, um, Calgary just launched last week. You should mm -hmm. check it out if you're yeah. adjacent to Calgary in any way. Um, so just finding those pockets around the country, because it is it, the idea is to go national and just finding those pockets around the country where we can really bring value to the places that we are. It's awesome. It's awesome because it's so grassroots. And I think by taking that grassroots approach from city to city, as opposed to just, hey, we're now right across, I think it really speaks to the strategy and the love of the communities and how each community is special and the stories around that community is special. And again, speaks to the way that it's not just a newsletter or not just a, a journal. It is a movement around community first, um, which is, again, why we see with so many events and uh, um, keep that up. Keep that up. Well, Kate, as you know, we get to chat with some of Canada's most interesting and successful founders and personalities on the Afternoon Tea podcast. And we just had an amazingly interesting one uh, with our guest of the week, legendary journalist Kirk Lapointe. And you have a special question for him. Can you uh, ask or can you share that uh, question for about his journey? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been lucky enough to work in uh, local, national and international news. But obviously, at Vancouver Tech Gen, we're focused on local and that's my area of expertise. So I'd love to hear from Kirk, who, as you say, is a real veteran of the scene. He's had a very long career in journalism. I'd love to ask, how have you seen the coverage of local news change over that time? Well, how many hours do we have here? Uh, <laughs> we have, there's a, there are so many distinct changes. Um, you know, the the first one I think that that is there is that there is a uh, in in a case of a place like Vancouver, for instance, uh, you know, there's been a, a disquieting diminution of uh, of the largest of the operations mm -hmm. that I think has uh, left the flank open a little bit, uh, and so just in the overall tonnage of coverage, I, I think. There's there's some patching up that needs to be done. Um, I think there is a uh, a stronger diversity than when I arrived here nearly 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. I think that that's healthy. We need more of it. Um, you know, we need we need a stronger representation across across our media to make sure that we have that. Um, I think we have. If you want to go to the political spectrum uh, of left and right, which are, are becoming kind of cliched and to some degree they're, they're a little uh, too simplistic, but uh, but I think we're uh, we're getting better coverage that way than we have in the past. There are more, you know, there there are plenty of conservative voices, plenty of voices to the left, and I think that that's uh, healthy for us. Mm -hmm. um, the the thing that I uh, I wonder about uh, because I don't see the outcome uh, that's terribly uh, hopeful is I do wonder about the overall media contribution to um, public participation in, in our institutions. We still have I think very depressingly low voter turnout in things like municipal elections. Mm -hmm. um, that we we have, uh, I think, um, kind of a, a dysfunctional at times, uh, social media discourse in the community. Uh, we have, um, we have kind of a, uh, you know, our open line radio shows uh, tend to uh, 
to attract only kind of the the crankiest of our of our population, and and it worries me about the partisanship that's come into it. You know, there's there's a there's an exercise that I'll participate in in next year that that I, I'm not at liberty to really discuss right now. But I mean, I, I've become quite interested in participating in things that uh, diffuse some of that partisanship so that we can have a healthier discourse in our community where we can recognize our differences of opinion respectfully and, and move from that. Uh, mm. Because I think that uh, everywhere, not just locally, um, the social media climate has simply amplified what were uh, simmering differences and, and let them boil over too often. And, uh, and I think what it does is it simply moves respect of people into their particular corners and they don't come out again. And so, I, so that, that to me is, is where the changes I think have been most negative. Um, there's a lot of positive things to say. I think we have, we have pretty good media for a city our size, mm -hmm. for a market size. You know, I, I place it on, you know, against a lot of other media markets our size. We probably think of it as being larger than it is. It's not really that large. You know, we're, we're pretty small in the North American context, certainly the worldwide context. Mm -hmm. And I think we have some pretty good practitioners here who, who know what they're doing and, and who um, make a really valuable contribution. I just wish that the outcome would be a little bit more effective with the public than, than I think it is. How, how, this is so interesting, like active, activist journalism, I think it's hard sometimes not to be. And I, and I, read, a, I read a story about some time where you took a stand and I'd like you to talk a little bit about this, where you broke the Young Offenders Act by deliberate, deliberately publishing the youth criminal history of an adult repeat offender. Can you tell us a yeah. little bit about that? Yeah, it was a, it was a great case. Um, uh, and I get asked about it a fair amount. Um, mm -hmm. I'll try to distill the story as quickly as possible. But when I was in Hamilton, um, the newsroom was, was familiar with this uh, offender who had been a bit of a human crime spree since about the age of 12 mm. and had had uh, serious uh, crimes and charges and convictions in his, uh, in his youth, had then um, graduated into the adult system and, uh, and, and just kept going and uh, had had, uh, at one point, um, as a youth, uh, the police had gone to a judge to permit uh, the, uh, you know, the, the disclosure of his identity, his name and, and, the, and the record because he was at large. And uh, the police felt seriously enough about it that they, they were prepared to uh, try to abrogate the rules under the Young Offenders Act to identify him. So, and the judge, and the, they were granted that. So the newspaper participated in that at one point. Years go by, he's an adult offender. He'd had at one, uh, you know, in, in the first year or so of his adulthood under the system, 57 charges against him and something like, uh, you know, a negotiation to plead guilty to three of them and, uh, and, and go to jail for a while. 
Um, and then he'd gone to jail again. And, and uh, the second that he came out of his uh, of prison, he violated the terms of his parole, which were to not associate with certain people. He literally met them and they hopped a bus down to Hamilton from Kingston. And, uh, and the police were ready for him when he arrived in Hamilton and he kind of uh, uh, dropped a bag and ran, ran for it and evaded police. And he was at large. And we were told about this and we, we expected, okay, they're gonna go back to a judge again and, uh, and ask that, that uh, his identity, uh, you know, of course you can identify him, but they wanted, we thought that the police would ask the judge to uh, talk about his juvenile record because his juvenile record was much more striking. Mm-hmm. And um, police never did. And, you know, we, those were the days where you had police radios in your newsrooms. And so we could hear <laughs> using code language about how dangerous he was, mm-hmm. how he not to be approached. Uh, you know, if an individual officer spotted him, don't approach him, wait, you know, we're, we'll get you, we'll get you back up. Because there was a sense that he was really dangerous, armed, you know, probably armed, I guess. So, you know, we kept hearing this all day long and uh, on the radio, police radio, and uh, and nobody was going anywhere. And so we had a decision to make. Do we, do we kind of write this rather anodyne clinical story of a man at large who has violated his parole and who has three somewhat measly convictions as an adult offender? Or do we basically say, hey, Remember this guy? We wrote about him a few years ago. Um, well, he's on the loose again. Um, and look at all the things he's done. Oh, by the way, here's his picture. Stay away from him. Mm-hmm. You spot him, you call the police. We thought that was the responsible thing to do. Mm-hmm. We, we thought that was the moral thing to do. And, uh, and we got a little full of ourselves and wrote to that effect. We almost like dared somebody to charge us mm-hmm. um, which you know you know you how do I put it you've got like about two or three hours to work this through and uh, when you finally make the call and you start writing and, and you know our, our our publisher was supportive and our company was supportive but there was a recognition that we could get charged and mm-hmm. and uh, face either a fine or maybe even imprisonment for violating this and uh, you know my publisher, was happy that we do it as long as it's me going to jail and not him. Uh, but, but uh, you know, and so we, we wrote about it and, um, you know, really the overwhelming uh, response from the public was, we're really glad you did this. Hmm. Uh, in fact, there were offers of, you know, if you ever get into trouble here, you know, I will support you financially, you know, to, hmm. to uh, pay for your defense. Anyway, a few days went by, a couple of weeks went by, and, and somebody lodged a complaint about what we had done. The police had to investigate that. Mm-hmm. And invest, in investigating, of course, it was a bit of a no-brainer. We had broken the law. We said we were breaking the law. And mm-hmm. so uh, a few of us were charged. Uh, the police then used it as an opportunity to then uh, start probing us on our views about the police force, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of, have, you know, detained and, and in, you know, uh, interrogated some of our journalists 
Um, I had a very short uh, session with them. Ultimately, we got them to script the charges from our reporters, and I was the lone, uh, you know, I was the, I was the lone remaining uh, charged person. It took about no, oh, took nearly a year and a half for this to get through the system. By which time, I'd already moved from the Spectator to CTV. Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, uh, the judge for my case had happened to have this young guy. Um, uh, appear before him some years earlier, where uh, where his lawyer had said, "Your Honor, you know, he will never offend again. You know, he's learned his lesson." And the judge, you know, granted him a, a pretty much a suspended sentence or a very low uh, penalty, and felt like he'd had his nose rubbed in it. So the judge was in no mood to to give this guy a second of grace, and. Uh, so, you know, even even the prosecutor had to acknowledge that they had no, you know, they had nothing to stand on. So I, I got a, an absolute discharge in this one. It was interesting. The, the young man uh, wrote me um, while while he was still at large. And um, he wrote me some, from some place, uh, sent an email saying, you know, um, you know, uh, you've unfairly targeted me. I, you know, I've changed my ways. I'm a changed man. We found out later on that that was, I think, uh, within a day, the fact that he'd gone into a man's clothing store and, and uh, overnight and stolen thousands of dollars of suits and things. So, you know, I feel sorry for him. He, he obviously had a, a, a real struggling life, but um, I felt in that case, and I still do, that uh, we couldn't sit idly by, uh, that we had a larger responsibility to the community if the police themselves were not prepared to use their authority to go before a judge and and plead for you know the elimination of the publication ban on his juvenile record Mm. and uh, i remember going to ottawa later on because there was a review of the young offenders act and they invited me to come and and, uh you know and and I was up against people that were were so so uh, uh, wedded to the idea of protecting the the act. And you know, I remember a, a bureaucrat saying, "What would you do? Would you publish the you know the exploits of a six year old?" And you're going, "But that's not the issue here. I mean, you're like you you so you you really aren't understanding that uh, you know that today's 15-year-old is my generation's 21-year-old. I mean, there's just so many more pressures and responsibilities. And, mm. and the context is so different. And and since then, of course, the context has changed again and again and again. You know, and, and mm. young people today are, are you know, really have a, a deep sophistication and, you know, and, and uh, needs to be recognized. doesn't mean that I think the act should be changed right now. But in situations like that, where even the police are basically saying this is a dangerous person, to to sit back and go, well, you know, the police are saying that, but we can't uh, we can't report it and we can't talk about it, and whatever happens, happens. I mean, just imagine if something bad had happened, and we had been sitting there, and that's, I guess, in a larger sense, Chris, where 
what I guess I'm talking about is that some of this advocacy and activism that that we talk about in journalism has to do with our overall complicitness in our systems mm-hmm. where we just play along and we don't ask questions and we don't stand up at times and take a risk in order to effect change or effect an outcome that, that we think, you know, maybe wrongly, but, but probably rightly, has a, a moral imperative to it. And, and, and it cuts across all kinds of things. Our responsibility to each other um, economically, socially, um, progressively, uh, and you know our responsibility to the planet, our responsibility all over the place. You know, and, and so when I'm teaching, and when students do talk about wanting to have an activist uh, bent to their work. Mm-hmm. You know, a generation ago, we would have shuddered at that. Now, what we what we're basically saying is, okay, so some of your writing, some of your broadcasting, will will have a distinct um, position it takes, and um, as long as you can kind of disclose that to the audience and not shield it, so don't try to cover up what you're really thinking here with you know with a lot of <laughs> a lot of your work. Then, um, then you know what? Um, let the audience then decide if it needs to discount what it is that you're saying. You know, if you if you disclose your conflicts of interest, you at least have given your audience an understanding of where you're coming mm-hmm. from. For sure. And if you're actively chafes, well, they knew it was there, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, and they can take it for what it is. Or, or if they really say, you know, it's very valuable. Um, you know, at, at least they weren't misled about, about what you were thinking, what your background was. Uh, it doesn't let everybody off the hook, but it, 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 it does, I think, dispel a fair amount of the concern. Oh, I agree. I agree. Well, over the years, you've, you've interviewed, um, you know, m- many people from multiple different, you know, industries. Um, who was the... Who was the most either, you know, you know, you either consider this possibly dangerous or you were most apprehensive to cover um, or to speak to? Was there anyone that you're just like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm going to talk to this person? Ooh, you know, boy, I would have to pour back and really review uh, because there are thousands. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, over over 40 plus years uh, writing about everything from you know music to I mean I started writing about music that was my, mm-hmm. my first entry point um, politics of course sport uh, business now um, lifestyle science uh, I mean there's so many people have been intellectually intimidating uh, you know you're you're grateful to be in the same room and try to get three or four decent questions in where they don't look at you like you're an absolute dolt. Um, um, some people that have had uh, awards and honors where you're, you know, you're, you're, you're just not worthy compared to, to what they've done, the sacrifices that they've made and, and, uh, 
and the advancements um, as a result of their work. So no, I don't. I don't have a particular one. I mm -hmm. I just know that uh, I, I can look back on the body of work and realize, like I, you know, journalism is just such a treat. I, you know, mm -hmm. I, I recommend people because there's no way on earth I would have met even one one hundredth, one one thousandth of these people. Mm. Uh, were it not the fact that I had an organization that was going to deliver their take on, on the situation to an audience that they couldn't easily reach on their own. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I was, you know, I'm a, I've been a lucky to it, all of that. And, uh, and I, re I really do feel it's been a, a position. I've always taken it quite seriously that way and, uh, and taken my responsibilities to heart. Mm. So it's, you know, I'll never be able to pick which one was, you know, was that person. Um, yeah. Didn't get mm -hmm. to interview the Beatles. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe we'll get the AI version of the Beatles you can interview at some point. But, well, I mean, you, you must have been Hamilton, for example, during like the Paul Bernardo days or something like that. Or is that not your times? No, no, uh, no, no. It's definitely, uh, uh, I was in management at that point. And mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in as much as, as uh, it seems like I'm a reporter because I write a column, uh, I, I do very little direct reporting and I, I got into management when I was, I think, 27 years old and I was a bit of a player, a coach. So I did a lot of reporting then and I kept mm -hmm. doing reporting. Uh, obviously got to be a TV host, so that's reporting. I went back to reporting, if you want to call it that, when I had a radio show here in Vancouver uh, with Roundhouse Radio, the short-lived Roundhouse Radio for about three years. Which I listened to and loved, by the way. It was a great... It was a great idea. Just uh, you know, business model was was just not going to work out. Um, and so, you know, I, I, mostly what I'm doing now, I, mean, I talk to a lot of people. Uh, they they help me frame my views, but I end up um, running columns for the most part. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I you know, I I kind of see myself more as a a manager than a frontline reporter. Um, mm -hmm. But and the Bernardo cases were, uh, you know, were really at a time when I was an editor and when I had some very good reporters mm -hmm. doing the work um, day by day at the trial and um, and obviously at, for a long time afterward in the uh, aftermath. Yeah. Mm -hmm. must, have been, it must have been a trying time, especially with the... Uh... Uh, when they're when they're blocking, you know, that you couldn't talk about it. You couldn't. I mean, I, I remember uh, getting all the information from Buffalo, which is such a weird situation when you yeah. can't even get news from your own, you know, your own country around something that's such a traumatic incident. Um, the first time I think that we really uh, and and it's strange that it would be a case like this, but but that was the first time we really started having these open discussions in newsrooms about trauma mm -hmm. and. I've noticed now that there, there's a very healthy uh, discourse going on in newsrooms about this because I, I, I've known a lot of journalists that have been deeply affected 
by stories that they've had to cover. And it's not just people that have gone to war zones. It's people that have had to deal with witnessing uh, hardship here. Mm. And, uh, and you know, I completely understand. Uh, I, I don't think I've unpacked whatever it is that I've experienced, but I've, I've only experienced a very small, very small fraction of what a, a reporter would be getting uh, hour by hour. And, um, and I think we're finally beginning to understand that as a craft that we didn't minister to this appropriately over the many generations. And, and now we're starting to, to think it through. I mean, it's part of the, part of the overall uh, diversity picture is that we're also beginning to understand that we need, um, we need representation by those that have, that are open uh, about their mental health struggles. Mm -hmm. it, it, it can make a very important contribution in, in informing our journalism. And again, one of those areas that we, we resisted in, um, in, in embracing in a certain way uh, into the craft. And we largely you know, dispatch people off to the sideline. And, uh, and you know, uh, I work with people at times and I have over the last 15 years who have been, you know, been um, open about their, their mental health struggles mm. and how in a lot of ways it, it's, it's exactly what we said at the beginning, it, it kind of, uh, it, it can be brought into your work in a really positive way uh, mm. to, to help others and um, uh, in, in their own relationship to their struggles. So it's, it's on, on balance, um, a good thing for the craft, hard thing for the individual, but a good mm. thing for the craft. Well, it must be, it must be difficult if you find, you know, writing is therapy, yet the writing that you're talking about or the topics you're talking about is anti-therapeutic, like it's actually causing trauma. That must be such a, a challenge, yeah. I would imagine. All, all journalism is harmful in one way or another. Wow. Wow. And one of Profound. the one of the important uh, principles in journalism and one that we until recently I think didn't have a good grip on is minimizing harm mm. and so uh, you know do you need to always identify somebody in a story isn't the mm. action the, the, the story and not the individual mm. so when certain alleged crimes take place you know you do need to name suspects you need to name even people charged uh, until they're convicted mm. um, all those kinds of things uh, are are uh, really important issues that we're only now starting to understand you know when when someone is someone's house has burned down and you interview them outside do you really need to identify them mm. you know and, and what kind of state are they in uh, do you really need to even talk to them? You know, aren't you, isn't it so exploitive mm. that, you know, that you're doing that when you're dealing with people that are, that have some mental health issues mm. or uh, addiction issues mm. or trauma issues, yeah. mm. you really get informed consent from people to, to carry their stories. Mm. Uh, when you're dealing with culture, with other cultures, 
where they have different protocol mm -hmm. uh, about information. Mm -hmm. Are you know, are you harming them to play your own protocol on mm -hmm. and and demand that they abide yours? All of these issues now, I think, are getting discussed in newsrooms well, at long last. I mean, I I wasn't trained in them. I can guarantee you the journalism school I went to, we didn't talk about any of this. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't talk about it in the first 20 years in my, in my business. Mm -hmm. uh, we were left to figure it out on our own. And thankfully, thankfully, a lot of people who were deeply offended by the things we did uh, who, you know, who were in some cases quite infuriated by it, nevertheless took it upon themselves to patiently sit down and bring us through their experiences to open our eyes. And I'm, I'm grateful for all the advisory committees I've had and um, the resources and communities where people have said, listen, you know, let me explain the Jewish experience to you. Mm -hmm. Listen, let me explain the Chinese experience to you. Mm -hmm. Let me explain, you know, the LGBTQ experience to you. Because I don't think you get it. I don't, mm -hmm. And I don't think your organization gets it. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, those, you know, those, those eye openers, uh, you know, I'm, I'm writing something today about the downtown east side and, and you know until i ran for mayor that i knew next to nothing hmm. you know even though my newsroom was about four blocks away from the epicenter um i knew next to nothing people walked me through the place now you know naturally they they were hoping that it, you know i'd win as mayor and that ride to the rescue but um but even after I didn't, uh, they stayed in contact and said, you know, I hope that you're going to carry this information forward with you. And yeah, it, it resonated. And I still think about them. Um, and I still care about that district uh, deeply and, and want to see some better administration of it. Uh, to to help people find their way and uh, and out of their out of their very miserable experience mm. but um but yeah you know you you get to be grateful i'm grateful for all the people i've met but i'm particularly grateful for people that just set me straight or mm. kind of straight anyway set me straighter <laughs> in the efforts you know. Help, help, help guide you through your understanding. And you know what, we're all, we're, we're all learning. And I can't believe how much I've learned today from you, Kirk. This, this has honestly been just a, a, a blessing, you know, a word I won't use very often, but I, I really do mean that. I, um, the fact that, you know, our topic matters just a little bit slightly different um, from, you know, our typical, hey, I'm a founder of a company, I do X, Y, and Z, and blah, 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 which is, you know, interesting in its own right. But this is a very different yeah. bend that I've that I've personally learned about. But, you know, I have these, these two questions, and I slightly tweak them just because I think with the subject matter, I think it's important to tweak them to 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 to, to fit into the the, the, the topic of today. Um, um, well, first off, can you share one piece of advice to help younger Canadian journalists? Well, learn about yourself first. Mm. It's a little bit 
as the therapist will say, it's about it's it's similar to love. You can't love somebody until you love yourself. Yeah, you're here. Uh, you really can't learn about the world and write about and broadcast about the world until you really have learned about, maybe even written about yourself. And uh, uh, and and you know, for me, it's still a journey. I'm I'm by no means at the finish point of that one. Uh, so that would be my advice, which is, you know, study yourself, um, really define the, the things that are motivating you um, and recognize them when they arise in difficult circumstances as they will all the time. So, yeah, that would be, that would be it. Um, Fantastic. And, uh, and, you know, um, what I usually, you know, on a craft side, if you want to call it that, uh, you can't write well until you read well. Mm. And, and you can't write a lot until you read a lot. And, and I think, I think writing is at the core of every piece of journalism, whether it's broadcasting, podcasting, uh, any kind of, even, even just kind of an, a TikTok. Um, the writing is is very seriously important, and you can't do it unless you've read a lot of others, and unless you're you're reading widely every day. You know, it's. And I'm sorry, it's, you know, it's it's like brushing your teeth, or <laughs> ensuring you're taking a shower. You know, mm -hmm. you've got to do it. It's the 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 kind of professional hygiene that is necessary is at times lost on people. And, and there are times where I don't feel like getting online and reading media in the morning uh, or reading, you know, reading a bunch of caustic social media, uh, mm. but I do it. And I, and, and yeah, I guess the other piece of it, this is a long answer is uh, also be, also read things that you, substantially disagree with hmm. right like we're you know the technology has permitted us this walled garden of uh validation of our pattern of reading and our and validation of our views and that's really very distressing hmm. take a long haul or at least it's i mean i i you know i there are a lot, there's lots of TV, plenty of news outlets, I fundamentally dislike, but I, I, I browse them. I need, I need the intel of what's mm -hmm. going on over there. The people that I, I don't particularly agree with or anything. And uh, it, it does you no good to simply stay in that bubble. It's mm -hmm. a, I mean, I always say the best way to learn your own language is to learn another because you actually have no idea what you're missing until you start reflecting on it. And, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, it, yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's a similar philosophy in that. If you want to be a better, also be an editor. It's, like, <laughs> it's amazing what you learn about writing the I second bet. that it's somebody else, it's somebody else's writing that you have to mess around with. It's quite, uh, quite illustrative. 
Oh, I, to- I totally agree with that. I mean, I used, to, I used to always say a critic is someone who failed in the industry, but an editor definitely must know what they're doing in order to do that. Well, last la- last question, because I'm, I'm quite intrigued about this. Is there, like, can you name a Canadian journalist or, or, or newscaster who you've always looked up to, like someone who you consider a personal hero? Oh, well, right now, um, right now there are a lot of, I think, iconic journalists. Uh, mm-hmm. They're mainly coming from different perspectives than my generation came out of. There's a lot of, I think there's a lot of very good Indigenous journalists mm-hmm. in our country. Uh, I, naming naming one or two would miss uh, 10 or 12 that I, that mm-hmm. at least I know. Um, there are voices uh, from in in what you know would typically be called different ethnic backgrounds than mine anyway. Uh, those are the ones I think that are iconic because to get to the point where they have even the audiences they do have, they've had vastly more struggle mm. than the rather greased skid that I had. To to be heard, and so I have much more respect for them than I do for you know the usual suspects, you know the the television anchor, the you know the, the you know editor in chief of some place or the high pollutant columnist or whatever. I mean, sure. I, for the most part, those those are to me the people that deserve. Uh, the absolute lion's share of, of uh, respect and praise because, you know, you like to say all things being equal, they're, you know, they're way ahead of it, but the truth is things aren't equal. Mm. Uh, they've never been equal for them. They've had to, they've had to withstand uh, abuse, absolute abuse. There's not one of them I know who hasn't mm. and, uh, to get to their point. Whereas, you know, every once in a while I get kind of a snippy letter from somebody and, and you know, so what? Um, mm. uh, you know, when I was at CTV News and ran that diversity initiative and we hired a whole fleet of different voices into it, I felt for these people in a number of different ways. But one of them was that their communities were so thrilled that they that, that somebody with who understood their language or their history and culture would now be on, you know, on this kind of television channel mm. that uh, they then, they then kind of like swallowed these people, and and every night after they had done their reporting for the day, they were out at a, a community event. They were all, they were an MC. They were a, a guest speaker. They were at a head table having to, you know, they, and I just thought, well, it's great, but you're gonna burn them out before you know it because they're suddenly, you know, there's a community of 
80,000 people or 100 or 200 or 400 or 500,000 people that have you as this kind of important icon. And, you know, when I thought about it, I thought, well, gee, you know, most journalists I know barely feel like they have a responsibility for their family, much less mm. a whole community. But that was the kind of pressure that was placed on people. So, so even the ones that get the opportunities and far more of them don't mm. have, um, you know, man, the pressure is just breathtaking. So, yeah, I mean, again, another long answer, Chris, but that was a beautiful one, Kirk. Those are the ones I respect. Uh, you know, not that I don't respect a lot of others, but I have the highest respect for them. No, you know what? That's 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 a perfect answer. I mean, we're we're here to expand the Canadian experience and and really, you know, try to to help people understand. And I I really appreciate you know through either through journalism or through education that you know you've 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 you, you've recognized the need and uh, definitely thrown some initiatives yeah. in to try to expand that. Yeah, we don't we don't recognize how lucky we are in Canada that we have all of these. Mm varying uh, forms of diversity in our midst. I mean, like we, we benefit every hour from it. And, and uh, I mean, it, it's, you know, I, I personally benefited massively, but uh, from, from association, mm-hmm. but just if you think about what it, what it provides us. And I think at times we just don't, we don't recognize it. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we kind of play through without an understanding of it. So, yeah, and I'll, I'll and I'll say it's a blessing too, not only of mine but also of soul in the sense of the restaurants are pretty good because of it. <laughs> we have a lot yeah. of oh, you know, you know the, <laughs> amazing the, flavors the to experience because of it. The, the you know the different diaspora in uh, media as well uh, make a, a genuine contribution. Um, and yeah, you know, we're uh, we're in the middle of the World Cup as we're speaking, and uh, uh, and for a lot of people, this is just a recognition of the wide world we have. But uh, but you can see that wide world on our streets pretty well every day in this city, mm-hmm. um, and in many of our communities in the country. And it's a it's a gift for us. It's beautiful, it's a real gift. It, it truly is. Well, Kirk, thank you so much for joining me today. Again, I have learned more than, than you know, I, I could ever imagine. I could never gift wrap something like this because this is just special. Um, but thank you for, you know, not only your time today, but also for for building trust in our community through your journalistic adventures and, and work. And, uh, you know, now that we've spoken and I've learned about, you know, the personal side of it, it, it really has it's it's improved my reflection on 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 every story that I read. I promise I promise you there. So th- just thank you for taking time and speaking with us today. Well, thanks a lot for uh, giving me the space and uh, the opportunity to to expound. You know, and uh, congratulations on on the podcast because uh, we need a lot more of this kind of uh, you know the, the kind of a conversation that that doesn't necessarily have to be. Uh, you know, running on the clock and uh, and defined by a half dozen questions and mm. short answers. So, yeah, it's been good. <laughs> In Thanks. fact, I have Thanks. I have a, probably three quarters of the half dozen questions we didn't even get into because we had way too much fun. <laughs> well, you know, anytime, anytime you want me to come back, you, you know. Truly appreciate it, Kirk. Thank you so much. All right, Chris. Take care. 
Ahoy, afternoon tea listeners. If you got this far, I assume you like this episode, and that is awesome. Thank you. In such a case, please rate and review Afternoon Tea Podcast and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your feeds from. Afternoon Tea is a podcast with a goal to share the stories of Canada's successful tech entrepreneurs in order to prepare the next wave of founders. We do have some great guests lined up for future episodes, but we would love to hear your thoughts too. Please do let us know who you think should be on the show. You can do so by emailing me at podcast at ttt.studio. That is P-O-D-C-A st at ttt that is three t's dot studio you will notice there is no dot com because we are that sophisticated furthermore you can find us at social media at ttt underscore studios i look forward to chatting with you soon